Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More. This week, we are doing an episode in our Business of Care segment about various aspects that impact the actual business of practice as opposed to the patient experience. Don't worry, we'll get right back to those episodes too. My guest today is someone so cool. Dr. Catherine Smittis has an extremely impressive resume. She did her undergraduate work at Harvard. She went to the University of Rochester for medical school and then was at Brown for her residency in internal medicine and went on to teach there. Dr. Smittis is here to talk to us about the transition that some doctors make from clinical practice, private practice to various other things, whether it's pharmaceuticals, consulting. In her case, Dr. Smittis went on to serve as the medical director in a very well-known and successful accountable care organization. I can't wait to hear what she has to say about how that decision came to be made and all of the ups and downs associated with that. Dr. Smittis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I have to tell you, I did a little um, LinkedIn stalking and I read your bio. So, oh, I don't know, just went to Harvard, right? Uh, You know, did your residency at Brown. So you are like a person with a resume, like like a thick, heavy, impressive resume. And after all of that impressive learning, you did some teaching, right? Um, In the Brown system. Yes. And from there, private practice, right? Internal medicine. Um, Tell me about that practice. Was it a private practice? Was it a hospital-owned practice? Yes. So um, just just going back a little bit. So when I finished residency and I got what I, it was really a dream job as a, as a um, academic internist. And I, I taught, um, taught, it was a hundred percent teaching and I was either on the wards or I was in residency clinic and I really thought I was going to stay there. And then my husband decided he wanted to change careers and get his PhD in math. And there was no way that we, there was no way that we could afford to live in Providence at that time. Um, It was kind of the height of the real estate bubble on, on my salary. And Mm -hmm. um, so we ended up moving back to our hometown and I would, was thought I would get an academic job here. Um, but at that time, there wasn't an academic job for me that did both outpatient and inpatient medicine, which is what I really wanted to do. So right. I joined um, a traditional private practice and, and you know, rounded in the hospital, saw my patients um, in, in the practice. And it was a, um, it was a small office. And at that time, they were tied together to some other primary care offices in the community. Um, It was a great arrangement. We would share, um, we basically shared central resources for our EHR and um, benefits and um, IT stuff, but we Mm -hmm. functioned as discrete independent offices. Um, So that was, that was my, my practice. Um, Over the years, we ended up stopping seeing patients in the hospital, like, um, has happened Most, uh, yeah. throughout the country. Right. And then eventually my one of my partners and I spun off from that practice and and stayed within our our same bigger group but opened um a separate smaller office and that's where I spent most of my career and it was um me and my my colleague physician and um and a nurse practitioner. Um there started to be a 
a sense of fear in in our community as the hospital system started buying up small practices. So my group eventually merged with a multi-specialty group. Um, and and so my practice, while, while it stayed at same small little office, ended up part of a bigger um, multi-specialty group. Hmm. And were you part of that decision-making process? I was. I was on the board um, when that decision was made. It was a um it was a it was a a very um difficult time for our group. Mm. So why were you so you were nervous um about the hospital presence, but you guys were doing fine? I felt like we were doing fine. Um, and I think we could have continued to do fine if we stayed independent. Um, and, um, and and we, I mean, we continued to be an independent group. We were just a group that was much larger. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and it, it would have been my preference to stay a primary care only group. Right. Well, you know, I see there's a few groups like that in our area that are multi-specialty, you know, big groups. Um I see some of it as an advantage, you know, access to specialists, right, you know, either physically right outside your door at at your fingertips, which is something we struggle with just getting patients um, the care they need sometimes. What are some disadvantages of being in a group like that? You know, I think um, we lost some of our autonomy. So some Mm -hmm. of the things were simple, you know, for example, um, Things like how your templates are set in an EHR. You know, if if all the primary care doctors want sort of this the EHR to function the same way, mm-hmm. um, the EHR functions that way. If there are suddenly other people who need the EHR to function a different way, then you need to compromise with them. Um, mm-hmm. And so, the other thing that became a bit of a sticky situation was how we shared centralized costs. Mm. Um, uh, and then interestingly, Christine, with how you and I know each other, another really, um, challenging thing was how we distributed dollars that we earned through value-based care contracts. Ah, so, you know, I'm, (laughs) I'm a board of one, right? So I, (laughs) I always have like the grass has got to be greener syndrome and I, I often think to myself, oh my God, if only I had some negotiating power, if only I could get, you know, a bunch of people together to reduce the cost of my vaccines. Um, if only I had some, you know, support in, in numbers, right? Um, but what you're saying is you get that, but the price is you have to compromise with those people that are in the numbers. Um, so can you elaborate a little bit on the cost issue, the sharing of costs? Christine, you're right. There are some huge benefits in being in a group. And one of them was we could um, negotiate really good contracts with the payers, mm-hmm. with the commercial payers, because we had enough of the primary care lives in our community. So that was a huge, huge benefit that mm-hmm. I had that you you can't do as a board of one. Um, I think it, one of the things that's challenging when you're part of a group is, you know, 
Christine, if you decided you wanted to try to cut costs within your office by being more efficient with with one or one thing or another, you would directly reap the benefit of cutting those costs. Mm-hmm. Or on the other hand, if you wanted to spend more on something or um, perhaps increase the salary of someone, you could do that. Mm-hmm. When you're part of a bigger group, there are um, sometimes the way the finances are structured. If you try to spend less money, it doesn't necessarily that saving doesn't necessarily come only back to you. It's sort of right. It's distributed across. Yeah. Or there might be um, there, there are salary ranges that the employees stay with and which, which needs to happen. I'm not, um, mm-hmm. So, so there's just, they're just, um, I think for, for someone who um, likes to be independent and make decisions for myself, it, um, it was challenging to have, um, you know, guardrails mm-hmm. uh, placed around me and, um, and it, it, it made um, practicing a little bit more frustrating. Yeah. So obviously it wasn't the care, the patient care piece of being a primary care doctor that wasn't satisfying. It was the circumstance or the situation within you were trying to practice. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I knew we were going to talk about my transition away from, from clinical care. And I, I was thinking about this last night and trying to sort of think, how can I tell this story in a linear fashion? And, and I decided I can't because yeah. it's not, it's not one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a bunch of things that happened. Um, and some of them were directly related to patient care. Um, oh. you know, Christine, I don't know if you found this, but I found during COVID, um, the number of after hours calls I would get, it just, just exploded. And they mm-hmm. weren't, I never, ever minded a patient calling with an emergency or with a medical question that needed to be handled at that time. You know, oh my goodness, I took two of my antihypertensive pills. What should I do? Right. That kind of call never, ever bothered me. But I found that patients would call with hypothetical questions after hours, or mm-hmm. I was just thinking about this or, and and um, the number of after hours calls I would get became really disruptive to me and my family. Mm-hmm. And because I was in such a small office, I was on call every other day, every other weekend. Wow. Um, and that, that got, um, that got challenging. I, I'm not someone who's ever slept well when I'm on call, even if I don't get called. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it started to be, um, it started to make me angry. Mm-hmm. And um, when I started to feel angry, that felt like a really, um, a really inappropriate emotion when thinking about my patients. Yes. Um, so yes. that, that shift of just, just way too many calls um, got hard. I also, my, my um, happy place is in the mountains and I, um, because the mountains don't have cell service every other weekend, I couldn't go yeah. with my family when hiking or, um, 
skiing or doing whatever they were doing. And it, it felt like I was missing out on 50% of my um, life, my family time. Yeah. Wow. So that was definitely a big piece. Um, my partner was, was getting toward thinking about retirement mm-hmm. and, um, and I knew there was no one who I was going to be able to get to come work with me. And I knew I could not be on call every night. So yeah. that was a factor. Um, my group also ended up deciding to be purchased by an insurance company. And I really didn't want to work for an insurance company. Mm-hmm. So that was a factor. Um, and then I think one of the other huge factors is I started to realize that I had very few years left with my kids living under my roof. And um, I mean, I, you know, my kids were in daycare under the care of someone from the time they were very, very young. And when they were little, it was certainly heartbreaking to leave them because they would cry, but I never worried that they weren't safe Safe. when, when I, when I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as my kids had become teenagers, um, I just realized that the, you know, the problems that they could potentially experience are much more important and much larger. And um, I wanted to be able to be more present with them more of the time so that if something just didn't seem right, I was there to pick up on it. Or if they decided that they wanted to talk to mom, you know, something that almost never happens, I wanted to be there and be able to listen. Um, So I just decided that I needed to rebalance Mm -hmm. um, my life, at least um, during this period of time uh, before my kids go to college. So they're really, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't one, one day. day this happened. It one thing that happened. Um, I, I've always, always loved my time in the exam room with patients. That's not something I was trying to get away from, but it didn't, I couldn't figure out a way that I could continue to practice clinical medicine that in a way that I would enjoy, where I also would have more of my personal time be my own. Wow. I am shocked. I feel like I'm reading a book and I just got to a plot twist. I never in a million years expected. And I don't know why that is. I mean, obviously you're a woman, you're a good bit younger than I, but you know, a very much similar family kids, you know, that is certainly my number one priority. And I would say for most career women, it, it is, and, you know, trying to find that balance, but what I heard you say, I mean, is definitely lots of factors, um, but the on-call thing and the disruption to your family life seemed to be like one of the biggest things, right? Yeah. So yes, yeah. interestingly for me, you know, we have so many clinicians in my practice that, you know, most of us take, I can't even say this in good conscience because I don't take call anymore, but the ones that do take call, take call infrequently. And lately, I would say in the last two years, I've heard a lot of grumbling about how hard call is. And I felt resentful of those complaints because our office is open Saturday and Sunday and every night until eight. So I'm like, you guys can't possibly be getting this many calls because the office is open. But I I think that's exactly what happened. I think First of all, patients during COVID were less likely to come to the office and maybe address things that could have been addressed in an office visit. And everybody was sitting home, you know, 
worrying about their mortality and the next disaster and what's a logical thing to do at 2 a.m. Let me ask my doctor, you know? Right, right. Wow. Okay. And and I'm so happy for you that you made this decision, like you said, while your kids are still at home, because, you know, two of my three kids are not at home. I have a, um, my 16 year old is the last one left. When my older two were at home, I was grinding. I missed everything. I, you know, I can't even talk about it without crying. But, you know, I'm so glad that I have like this do over sort of with my uh, youngest daughter. And this week, in fact, I was supposed to work like till five on Mondays, right? And the rest of my days are end early. She gets home at three. And uh, I was like, I was talking to my office manager. I'm like, I need to find two hours somewhere in the week because I need to get out at three o'clock. And she kind of looked at me like, you know, Hadley's practically driving. Like, why? And I was like, I need to see her face when she walks in that door. Because I can tell that something bad happened or something great happened. Um, So if I had been in your, if I didn't have the autonomy to be able to say, find me two hours somewhere else in this schedule, I don't think I could have lasted in an environment like that. So, okay, great. So multiple things. And I want to make sure I touch on, you had talked about um, expense sharing, maybe not being equitable. Um, And then you, you started to say, or very briefly said, uh, payment distribution from value-based contracts didn't seem equitable. Um, so I want to get back to that because I think that's a really important thing. But so then you decided what other career options are there? Is that kind of how it went? Or did did your yeah. current position kind of show up for you? No, I, I, um, I mean, probably like you, Christine, like I've never applied for a job. <laughs> I mean, I did when I was in high school, but right. so I really, um, and I had no idea really what I wanted to do. I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to work for an insurance company. Um, I, you know, I didn't want to work for anything that seemed like it was taking advantage of patients. Um, and I, I, so I, so I actually took out a notebook and made a list and I made a list of sort of what was my skill set and what was important to me and one of the one of the things that was really important to me was like you you and I were talking before we started i believe passionately that primary care should be independent and i think if primary care can't get back to being independent um i'm not sure how the us healthcare system can continue to function we need we need smart physicians in primary care and um we need them we need them to be autonomous and so you know when i thought of sort of the lofty what would i like to do i would like to save primary care i would like primary and i would also like to save my profession of general internal medicine which is dying you know mm-hmm. internists are not going into primary care anymore so you know, if I could do something that would, would help primary care, great. And then on my list of skill sets, so I, I didn't touch on this, but I kind of became the de facto expert in um, value-based care for my group or one of them. And so I'm a complete data nerd. And <laughs> my my part of the country actually was, was really um, ahead of the game with value-based care. So I, I don't remember what year, like 2017 or something, 
60% of my revenue was value-based care. Wow. So, so I was in value-based care contracts with nearly every payer. And we also were part of MCPC and then CPC, CPC plus. So because these contracts were being really written from scratch, I also became obsessed with what's in the contract. Is it fair? What are they measuring? How do we do wellness contract? Um, and kind of tracking what we were getting from the different payers when, and, you know, were they, were they actually giving us what they said they were going to give us? So I felt like one of my skills was that I knew how to do well in a variety of value-based care contracts and, um, and, you know, population health type stuff. So, so I kind of wrote that down and then I just reached out to a few people and talked to them about how, what were some options. And um, actually two of them mentioned Allidade. I'd never heard of Allidade. Mm -hmm. Allidade wasn't in upstate New York um, until Mm -hmm. recently. And um, so I ended up applying for a job with Allidade and fortunately um, got the job. Wow. So I I love the pen and paper thing because I, you know, that is so critical. Like your mind can be in a million different places, but until you see it in black and white in front of you, it's very hard to visualize. Like when you say, like you were saying, what what are my skill sets? I'm like, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, oh God, I don't even know. I don't know how I would yes. write down these things. Um, it took but it me is- a long time, Christine. I said it quickly, but it was very hard. It was a hard exercise for me to do. And, and also, I think not just your skill set, but like, what do you love? You know, what are you passionate about? What do you enjoy? Because if you're good at something, but you hate doing it, like I'm very good at cleaning a toilet. I <laughs> hate doing it, you know? Right. So, right. but if you, if you're good at it and you're passionate about it and you love it, um, that is like the makings of a fantastic career, right? So, um, so did you have to actually apply for the Allardyne oh, yes. job? Yes, this was, I mean, and and in the, I was also thinking uh, what was hard about this transition. So it was, there were a lot of pieces where I just felt like like um, a person from a different generation. I mean, <laughs> first of all, I had to do a resume and, and, and I had to upload it. And then um, the application process was, you know, on, online. There were a lot of just, just technical things like, I don't know how to do this. Um, but yes, I'd apply an interview and, and it was a real job interview interviewed with several people. Um, and then, then once I got the job, it was, um, you know, this is a virt this company, almost everyone works virtually. So just getting used to the company culture and using Google meet, and understanding Google Calendar and um, all of that was that that was overwhelming because I had never worked in a company. Wow, what was the biggest selling factor for you? What was the thing that was like, I want this job? I, I think that the when I learned about Allidate's mission and the culture and and what it was trying to do and how successful it was doing it, that that sold me. So for people who don't know, um, tell tell us about Allidade. I know about Allidade, but tell us about Allidade. If you could describe their mission and success in a nutshell, how would you describe it? 
Yeah. So, so um, for, for people who, who don't know, um, and, and Allidade works in um, the accountable care organization space and accountable care organizations are um, groups of doctors that get together and agree to take high quality, cost-effective care of their patients. And um, accountable care organizations, ACOs, were constructed by Medicare as a way to try to curb healthcare spend in the United States, and also as a way to try to give some money back to the people that were keeping people healthy, um, namely primary care doctors. (laughs) But the way that the program is structured made it inaccessible to small offices um, for two reasons. One, you need 5,000 Medicare patients in order to form an ACO. And wow. most small practice, all small practices do not have 5,000 Medicare patients. But the other problem is that forming a successful ACO means taking on some downside risk. So if the accountable care organization doesn't do well, you actually have to pay Medicare back. Mm. And that is not something that most independent practices um, can or want to do. So this company was founded to make accountable care organizations accessible to small practices. So what we do is group together a bunch of small practices um, so that they have enough patients to form an accountable care organization. And we take on the risk so that that is not ever passed on to the to the um, practices and um, and in doing this, we are allowing independent practices to take part in value based care programs, which then you know not only I think are is um, it, it's certainly important for our country at large, but I also think it can be pretty rewarding for the practices and is an additional important source of cash flow. Hmm. Yes. So I did not intend for this episode to be an Allidate advertisement, but I'm so glad that this is this is how <laughs> it's kind of shaping up because so I am exactly what you said, small practice, less way, you know, way less than 5,000 Medicare patients. Um, I was definitely not going to take any downside risk, right? And I was in an ACO that was not performing well for many, many, many years. And I didn't you know, lose money off of that relationship, but I certainly didn't make any money. And it was very hard to do well because we didn't have the tools to do well. Um, Because I think that's another critical thing about the ACO model uh, and Allidate specifically is, yes, group the practices, get the patients, take the downside risk, but also give us the tools to help us do well, right? Um. And like you said, Allidade performs very well. This is my second measurement year that just ended with Allidade. And I'm just astonished at the performance. I almost feel like I have a little imposter syndrome. And I've said this to people at Allidade before. I'm like, I don't belong in this ACO. You don't like, belong, Christine. I- <laughs> well, you know, when I look at our practice stats, I, I'm getting better at at acknowledging that because it does feel like, you know, our performance is on par with what it should be. So what specifically, though, is your role in this amazing Allidade organization? So I'm a regional medical director and I cover, um, we're divided into markets that are mostly by state and I cover your state of Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And so um, my role is um, really 
the, the main part of my role is educating, assisting, coaching um, the physicians and other clinicians uh, to try to up their um, performance so that they maximize uh, maximize the benefits to the patient and to their practice. Um, so, you know, some of a lot of my time is spent looking at data and trying to figure out, okay, who who um, would benefit from hearing from me? And, um, and what can I show them that would be helpful to them? Well, I can vouch for that. A, a couple things. One is you have been tremendously helpful for my practice. I mean, I think uh, understanding the finer points of the data as a non-data nerd myself and a non-mathematician um, is so helpful. But honestly, I love that you're a physician and you're an internist. Like to me, I feel immediately connected I trust what you tell me because I feel like you've been in my shoes and you know what I know. Well, you know a lot more than I know, but you, in terms of clinical practice, you know what I know, right? Because there are other organizations that try to help doctors and we have these, you know, support people liaisons that are not physicians. Like some are nurses, some have no medical training at all and they bring the data, right? But it's very hard to connect with them on the same level. So that is, it's just amazing that you are there. And I'm so grateful for that. And in, in your, so looking through the journey, um, are there any things that you regret about this decision? I mean, I, I have a lot of guilt and sadness about not taking care of my patients anymore, um, particularly because there's a shortage of primary care doctors. So I will run into my patients in the community mm. and um, they miss me and I miss them. So um, that's been hard. Um, I recently, over the last, few, I, I'd been, um, I needed, I felt like I needed a year of no clinical medicine. And then I wanted to figure out a way that I could do a little bit of clinical medicine and um, Allidade is, is very kind in that they, they let the medical directors do a half day a week of clinical um, work if they want to. Wow. And mm-hmm. so, but it, but it's actually pretty hard to find a half day of clinical work a week. Yeah. So um, after some searching, I, I've started volunteering at the city mission primary care clinic in Albany, and I go a half day a week and um, we see patients who are uninsured. And so it's, we, we basically see homeless patients and then um, people, uh, undocumented people. And Albany recently um, got a whole bunch of undocumented people bust here um, wow. from New York City. So there's a, there's actually um, a huge demand right now for, for, um, for care. And I feel so happy when I'm there and when I leave and, um, so I, I'm really, really grateful that I um, dusted off my stethoscope and and get to help um, these folks a little bit once a week. Wow. Sounds like the perfect balance. And I just want to say this to you. I know you're not taking care of your X thousand patients that you were taking care of before, but I feel like in your role, you are scaling that care in an exponential way because you're not taking care of the patients directly, but you're helping me take care of my patients and I'm helping my 20, right? And you're also helping this practice and they're 30. So I think your reach and your impact is 
way higher than it would have been if you were <laughs> the one just in the exam, not just in the examining room. I so I think you. it's such a great thing. And to be able to volunteer, you know, a little bit and get your hands in a population that needs you to, that's incredible. Um, so I just want to close with just a little bit more about the value-based contracts piece, because I, you're definitely an expert in that. And I, I firmly believe that value-based care is the way for private practices to stay private. And for in so doing, for doctors who practice primary care to stay satisfied in their careers and maybe not get to the yeah. point where they're looking to make that change, right? So you mentioned uh, the distribution of incentives earned through value-based care. So just to sum up for people who don't know, if you take good care of your patients, high-quality, cost-effective care, you are paid certain incentives based on that, right? That's a fair way to sum it up. Um, So when you're in a large group with multi-specialty doctors, what happens to those incentive dollars? Well, I think that would be different in every group. And, um, you know, I think there's different ways to to look at this. So I think the specialists feel like they should have a piece of the value-based care because they feel they're also helping um, with this work. Um, my perspective is the vast majority of this work falls on primary care. I mean, you know, Christine, there's a lot of, let's face it, a little bit of busy work um, Mm -hmm. involved doing well in value-based care contracts and quality measures. And I mean, the specialists are not the ones calling patients and telling them to get their mammograms. Um, But when a large check comes in um, to an organization, um, I think everyone wants a piece of that. Um, What was... What my organization, um, there were a few things that were that we would struggle with, and you know, th- these were well-meaning people sitting around a table, each with a with a position that made sense. Um, mm-hmm. But what we would struggle with sometimes was what what portion of a value based care check should stay central to um, to to cover central overhead expenses mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what portion should go to the office. Um, you know, there, so there were some central, you hear this from out, like quality people who would mm-hmm. um, work some care gap lists, like what portion went to them? And then, and then how was that portion determined? Was it based on how many lives each office had? So, you know, the, the, it, and Sometimes, um, sometimes we would get like extra checks where it wasn't really clear what it was work it was tied to. So it just it, it there it wasn't always consistent how that money was distributed. And Christine, I'm sure you feel this too. It's it's hard when you're small um, to function when you don't know how much money's coming in or when. Yes, absolutely. And I think what ends up happening, and I'm sure this happens to you, is the doctors underpay themselves for the whole year. Till the end of the year. Till the end of the year when that check comes in. Mm -hmm. And then when you don't know, in in a small office um, where, where, you know, we were just two docs, our shared savings checks would go, would be all over the map because um, if one of our patients was more sick, so they could they could vary by a huge 
degree. So it was stressful. This this is tangential to what you just asked me, but just know. acknowledging that while value-based care payments are wonderful, they can be they can be stressful because you're not getting consistent income right. um, or predictable income. There's certainly pros and cons of capitation, but I was I was in one contract with a with a big local payer that covers a lot of the commercial lives in my area where we would get capitated payments and then and then we would get a shared savings check that was really nice because mm-hmm. we were getting consistent good money throughout the year with from them um and it and it made it made kind of my personal income smooth out a little bit yeah the cash flow is a little bit easier yeah i mean what other industry in the world could you be like okay i want you to replumb my house and i'll pay you in 11 months like there's no other (laughs) right true true like there's no other no it is exactly it's over a year um there's no other industry where that is acceptable so wow so all of this to say that you have uh been on a career journey that touched on a lot of different things. And I'm assuming that the working from home almost exclusively, right? That's been great for your family. So you are there when your teenagers burst through the house and either storm up the steps or actually greet you. That's right. (laughs) That's right. I can have my eyes on them. I also someone, I'm also someone who I actually am an introvert. I like being by myself. So just being, being in a quiet house works well for me. Wow. Very good. So if you had to give advice to physicians um, that are struggling with this decision to leave their current clinical situation, maybe look at industry or whatever, what what advice would you give them? I would say, um, you know, don't don't feel like you're stuck. And a lot of us feel stuck. Um, and and, uh, and I also think, I kept reminding myself that the decision wasn't permanent. I wasn't right. going down a road where I couldn't come back. You know, I, I'm, I'm doing this for now and maybe I'll decide to do it forever. And maybe I'll decide that I'm going to go back to clinical medicine, but I think it can feel very permanent to, to walk away from clinical medicine. And, um, it's like riding a bike. You can do it yeah. again if, if you take a break. So, um, I, I think it's a it is a huge decision. So I don't think anyone should do it without being very very thoughtful about it. You know, please don't quit your job in a moment of frustration and and regret it. But but I think we we need um, we need great doctors um, doing the non clinical jobs too. And um, and so I I, I think. Um, you know, it's okay to leave clinical medicine and help the healthcare system from a different angle. Mm-hmm. Oh, I absolutely. So I know, like I said, a lot of times in our talk and outside of our talk that you guys that are doing the non-clinical work are just critical to us in the trenches doing the clinical work. So I think you know, having the doctors on both sides is so, so, so important. And, you know, when you are satisfied in your life and in the quality of your life, you do a better job, whether you're a doctor or whatever career you're in, right? So, you know, you having what you need 
helps you help so many people. And that is what it's all about. Um, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I know this was a lot of sharing for you, for someone who's an introvert, um, but it's been such a helpful conversation. I love hearing you know, the other side. I hope that uh, the powers that be at Allidade are listening to us sing their praises. And, you know, <laughs> maybe Allidade will be flooded with position resumes in a couple of weeks. Yes, but, uh, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's honestly, uh, it sounds like for someone ready to leave clinical medicine, like you're doing God's work, so to speak, but you're also, you get all this freedom that you need and you're not getting 50,000 phone calls in the middle of the night. So it sounds pretty ideal. I'm so happy for you. Um, thanks for being here, Catherine. I hope I get to chat with you another time, uh, maybe about some very specific value-based care work. Would I would love, love that. to do that. Awesome, I would love awesome. that. Thanks so much, Christine. Thank you. So for everybody listening, uh, this was my chat with Dr. Catherine Smittis, who was in clinical medicine and has transitioned to a non-clinical role, but again, helping so, so many practices perform well for their patients and for their own independence. If you're a physician in practice and you've had a transition or are thinking about a transition or have a practice success or failure story you want to talk about, please reach out to me, Christine at ChristineMeyerMD.com. Thank y'all. Thanks for listening to The Business of Caring with Dr. Christine Meyer. We want to hear from you. Join us as a guest on our show. If you'd like more information on today's episode or how to contact Dr. Meyer, visit us online at christinemeyermd.com or send us an email at christine at christinemeyermd.com.